0: I passed the compressor. You were the chosen one! Something truly special. Congratulations. You are being rescued. Revenge is not the Jedi way. I am no Jedi. The ability to speak might not make you intelligent, but we're going to try to prove otherwise. This is the Clashing Sabers podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brandon, and I am here with my co-host, starting with the man who is the Jar Jar Binks of the pod racing world. It's... That had better not be me. It is. Hey, it's true. The Jar Jar of the the pod racing world? I don't know what it means either. (laughs) Sometimes I just like spin a wheel and see what it lands on and... Fair enough. You know, like we talked about, at least we're consistent with things. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And uh, with us consistently is the third installment in our little trilogy here. He's the B-1 battle droid that didn't shut down. It's... It's Devor. Guys, this is an exciting episode because we're celebrating two important uh, Star Wars events here on this show, one being, of course, the 25th anniversary of The Phantom Menace And the second being the 25th anniversary of Star Wars Podcast. just works out so nice and neat how that happened. Yeah, so... Very nice. So some of you might actually be listening on Star Wars Podcast Day, February 7th. This will come out a little bit before then. So if you are uh, listening to this before then, uh, make sure you go look and see all the great shows that are putting out content. Not just uh, us here at Clashing Sabers, but all across the Star Wars Podcast world. Um All of those who who are listening, new, old, we welcome you. We're glad to have you. Uh, If you haven't already, make sure you're subscribed to the channel so you can get all of our podcasts on Star Wars Podcast Day and every other day that we put out podcasts because we're usually putting out uh, one to two podcasts a week. So you get all kinds of good stuff there. And while you're at it, if you could go leave us a rating and review, that really helps the visibility of the show, helps us continue to build this awesome community And to be able to do the things that we do. And that all happens because of of you guys leaving ratings and reviews and spreading word of mouth. So thank you in advance for that. So guys, 25 years of The Phantom Menace is just absolutely insane. And it's, it's partially crazy just because we're getting old. But partially it's crazy because of reflecting on how much the Star Wars landscape has changed. Like we look now, we have this plethora of content coming out all the time. We like rewatching is almost a concept of the past because it's like the next new thing is coming out. Whereas with Phantom Menace, it was Phantom Menace and that was it. There wasn't, like, with Force Awakens, you had Rebels on at the same time. With uh, The Last Jedi, you had Mandalorian on at the same time. Like, uh, Or, sorry, Rise of Skywalker, you had Mandalorian. With, with Last Jedi, you had Solo coming out six months later. Phantom Menace was it. It was everything. And it was everywhere. So, I kind of wanted to just take a moment before we really get into our main conversation about the movie and talk about, like, what are some... Kind of small, random Star Wars, The Phantom Menace memories that you guys have.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I remember the lead up to The Phantom Menace a lot. So I was when Phantom Menace came out, I was seven. So I was the target demographic for that movie. And the things that I remember about that lead up is, I mean, one, I remember just all the toys. Like I remember going to our Walmart and there's just the whole aisle with, you know, the red and the black, the, the packaging from the Phantom Menace. So I remember all that. I remember the 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 KFC Taco Bell Pizza Hut oh, promotion thing huge. where each one of them was a planet. yes. And they had the little display case, you know, in the restaurant and stuff. I remember that. That was great. And, of course, I remember the movie. You know, I saw it, I think, I'm trying to remember, It's like 10 or 11 times in theaters. Whoa. And 10 or 11 yeah.
0: times? Something like that. Yeah. Oh, Somebody gosh. had nicer parents than I did. <laughs> <laughs> Devore, are you an only so, child? Yes. Mm-hmm. It explains. Yeah. Indeed, I am a certain list of things. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't. I don't know what that means either. I'm sorry.
1: But no, yeah, I just remember all of that, and I remember just as a kid. Yeah, l- loving the movie because one, like I said, I was again like the, the target for that movie, and then I think just because of my age, you know, and, you know, it being the time period that I was, I was sort of disconnected from a lot of the reaction and backlash to it because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like on the Internet yet. Like, I don't think we even had a PC in our apartment or whatever at the time. So I was kind of disconnected from that. I was just sort of enjoying it as just a kid who was a fan of Star Wars. So, yeah, I have a lot of fond memories. It was the lead up to the Phantom Menace was A weird, wonderful time that, in a lot of ways, because it happened, will never happen again. True. And I think, like, one of the big reasons it will never happen again is actually to a point that you just brought up, Brandon, which is that you had that atmosphere of Star Wars' is back... And I think in a lot of ways, I don't know that we will ever really be in that position ever again of Star Wars is I mean, like there were the books like there was the EU and stuff like that. But in terms of like big screen Star Wars that you can go to watch, you go with your parents, you go with your friends, whatever you take your kids to it like that kind of Star Wars is back like, you know, big letters. I don't know that we're ever going to have that. Like, we kind of had it with Force Awakens. Yeah, a little bit. In a way, a little bit, but not even, even not to that extent as it was the case in 99. And even just, like, looking forward, I don't know that we're even going to have a kind of Force Awakens level moment happen again.
0: No, we're definitely not going to have that. And it, I don't say this, like, as a knock on the marketing around the Force Awakens, but it really, to, to an extent, it felt like a an imitation almost of the Phantom Menace because the Phantom Menace went so over the top. Like, it was literally everywhere. You could not walk outside of your own front door without seeing Phantom Menace advertising. And Force Awakens was huge. It was everywhere, but it wasn't every... Like, it was everywhere you went, but it wasn't everything. You know, like the Phantom Menace was. like yeah. Phantom Menace was plastered on so many things and i mean maybe a little too much in retrospect kind of went a little <laughs> bit overboard but yeah it was it was still different like it was its own thing and it's funny you bring up the the taco bell thing because i one of my vivid memories is my darth maul on the speeder toy with the r- <laughs> yes. rip, rip cord. Yes, I, I remember playing with that and and like making it go over the side of the table like he does when he's going in Tatooine. He just drops down. I'm like, this is screen accurate right here, um,
2: <laughs> like screen
0: accurate. It, it in my little brain. It was like um, that's one of my my memories. And then, um, do you guys know what a bow staff is? Yeah. Okay. So for for listeners that don't know, it's basically a long staff of wood, um, that you use in it's martial Donatello's arts. Donatello's weapon. Exactly. Yes, Donatello's weapon. Um, so I was doing martial arts at the time and was starting to learn bow Staff uh, right around the time of the Phantom Menace and definitely pretended I was Darth Maul all the time that oh, I was yeah. doing it. It was great. And it actually, like, it gave me an affinity for it and I became pretty proficient with it. Like, I was pretty good with that particular weapon. And it was all because of Darth Maul. So... Thank you, Darth Maul, for making me good at something in my life. Drew, what about you?
2: Um, I remember seeing it, I think, the day after it came out in theaters, because I feel like it came out on a Wednesday, but we weren't allowed to go to the late show because it was still a school night. So I remember going like right after school, I think on the Thursday that it came out, um, trying to avoid all the spoilers, going straight from school to the movie theater, um, I remember the soundtrack spoiling major events within the context of the film. That was super cool. Um, yeah, the merchandising is kind of this weird. Do, do you remember? You guys remember they had like a, a, several of the figures released before the film, so you could kind of get an idea of who was going to be cool and who was going to be hip. Um, and one of the one of the cool characters to come out was Rick oley <laughs> He's <laughs> remember, the oh, hippest. They were like, he's going to be the next Han Solo. He's going to be so cool. And he just, he is exactly what he is. So there's no way around that. Um, I just, Yeah, a lot of those strange things. I still have several of those figures in like a bag somewhere. Um, obviously, back in the day of just ripping things out of their plastic. And, and, and like you guys were talking about, playing with them every single day. Uh, but this is not anything that's collectors anymore. But wow, what a weird time to be like. I remember... The trailer for it was first available. I think was it at, before Meet Joe Black? I'm correct. Yeah. And do you remember? Yeah. So, and I think Meet Joe Black like tripled expectations because they attached the first trailer to it. But then there were all these reports of people who would come in
0: watch the trailers and then just
2: leave the film. So it sold all these millions of tickets, but nobody remembered watching the movie.
0: Yeah i I don't think I've ever ever seen the movie. Um. But, yeah, it yeah, was, I, I, I guess I so, since nobody Phantom remembers Menace. it. Hmm? I
2: remember seeing the Phantom Menace maybe three or four times in the theater. I think that's, I don't remember if that was one of, because I don't, don't remember going back to repeat viewings until I was able to hit, like, the high school age and able to drive myself. Phantom Menace was still eighth grade, so end of middle school for me.
0: Yeah, still no. Still needed a, a parent to come chaperone. I would have been fifth grade, I think, fourth or fifth grade. Uh, mm-hmm. so I got to see each of them once. Um, but it was kind of, <laughs> yeah. So that's why force awakens was huge for me getting to go see it multiple times. It was the first one I got to see multiple times in the theater, but, uh, wow. I know. So phantom menace, phantom menace, I've, I've talked about it before, but it actually got spoiled for me. On, on my own free will, um, because I went was waiting till the weekend to go. We had to wait till the weekend to go, and so I was in the after-school program at my elementary school, and one of the coaches had seen the movie, and there was like four or five of us just standing around going, "Tell us everything," and he told us everything. Um, oh my goodness! So just the yeah. way the film is it meant to be experienced, right? Ex- complete it- secondhand knowledge. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I remember. Oh Reading the junior novelization, like I probably read that thing like fifteen times, and it was like it had the little slip case. Did you guys have this? No. Yeah, oh, it was great. It, ha- it had a little slip case, and it, there was just a little opening where I think you could see Anakin when you put it into the case. And I always made sure I put it into the case. Um, got this to protect for the, the book. book. Yeah, for the for the junior novelization.
2: A slipcase for a book. I don't know that I've I can think of another example.
0: I, I of that. can't. I can't think of another example of that. So, <laughs> it, again, the Phantom Menace is a weird, cool, weird, weird, yeah, thing. Like it's got so many unique elements to it, and and I guess that kind of leads us into our our main discussion, where each of us is going to present a Phantom Menace thesis statement. So here's kind of the basic idea. Um, each of us has concocted. <laughs> You guys are really encouraging with the laughing in I, the back. I, I this, couldn't it. help it. It was the most
2: ridiculous roundabout way of coming to a conclusion, and I don't think we ever did. So that's what yeah. kind of what makes it fun and exciting for me.
0: It's it's going to be an unpredictable episode. That's what makes it exciting. That's what the people want. We give the people what they want. Um, mm-hmm. So the the general idea is that each of us has concocted what we believe to be Uh, a thesis a main and important statement that the film is making or to do with the film we as you can kind of tell have left that somewhat up to interpretation so we're going to present said statements and then our co-hosts are going to hear them for the first time on air and uh we're going to have to support defend and discuss said ideas so do we have any volunteers to go first does anybody want to give this a gander I am not going first. Absolutely not. Me neither. All right. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Buckle up, baby. All right. Oh, no. My thesis on The Phantom Menace is that The Phantom Menace is about how socioeconomic disparity between classes destroys the possibility of a functioning democratic republic and is the first domino in its eventual demise.
2: You're not allowed to copy and paste text
0: messages we send to you as these statements for episodes. <laughs> no, no. I came up with that. You shut your damn mouth. <laughs> shut your little dug mouth.
2: Okay. One more time from the top.
0: <sighs> okay. It's a period of civil war. So, like, the, the, the prequels overall are about how the fall of a republic and how it it gets handed over. And basically my idea is that the socioeconomic disparity that's created between classes through greed and other uh, means destroys that republic's ability to function and is the, the separating of those classes through socioeconomics is the first domino that is leads to its eventual fall. I think that's what Mm. the phantom menace is saying.
2: I would bounce off of the socioeconomic disparity element of that argument. I think it boils down to a, uh, and I'm not sure if this is a real word in English yet, but a specious uh, disparity and to, to, to support that, I would say it's the advance and reliance on droid technology that was really the first, it was the first thing that allowed Sidious to put into play his entire plan of overthrowing the government and establishing a one world uh, order. One man, one world order kind of thing. Like, without the droid army of the Trade Federation and the Trade Federation's pushing of, you know, droids replacing sentient beings And decision-making capabilities. I don't think you have the fall of the Republic in the same way.
0: Even with the greed of the Nemonians, like that's to me, that's what Palpatine really took advantage of was the greed that is the basis of such disparity. And do we go ahead?
2: Do we know? I, I had always kind of thought that Palpatine was was this like influential starting figure in the trade federation to get them to where they had a seat in the senate. Oh, but you're positing that the trade federation came first.
0: Uh yeah, I I, I would imagine <laughs> so. I I got the understanding that the trade federation has just been around for generations because they have a seat in the senate. Like I I don't Do think we know? What is the? Here's a question I've never had to ask out loud.
2: What is the earliest recorded mention of the Trade Federation in the Star Wars
0: universe? Um,
2: Sometimes I hate my job. You know that.
0: I I don't I, in canon. I don't know. Yeah, I think Master and Apprentice has a mention of them. I'd have to go back okay. and reread the entire thing, which I will do just for oh this my gosh. singular point. Okay. Um, well, if, if we're going to take Wikipedia at its, at, its, uh, at its word, but the first line
2: of the Trade Federation's section on history says, the Trade Federation was established around 350 BBY, and that comes from the Star Wars Build the Millennium Falcon book? What? what?
0: <laughs> of all the random things.
2: Okay, not, I'm not going to go down that particular rabbit hole. So, okay, so it's been around forever. Actually, 350 yeah. years... Puts that just prior to, the High Republic series kicking off, doesn't it?
1: I think so. Yeah, it
2: would. What if? <laughs> what if the Trade Federation was birthed out of the Occlusion Zone, with the Nihil?
0: Oh, and that's why they didn't want the tra- taxation of trade routes. Yeah, or they were keeping it a secret.
2: Hmm. They're like, well, you're not going to put any trade trade routes through the Occlusion Zone. That's where that's where all of our scary people live.
0: <laughs> that's where our scary people live, <laughs> and our our you know those a- guys, big angry dog kind of thing.
2: Which would make sense why the Jedi Council kind of got wanted to get involved and send quote peacekeepers into settle to arrange some kind of a settlement because they know that ties between the Federation or the trade Federation and the Nile go back so long. I mean, look at the guys who are still on the council, Yoda, Yarrow Poof, Operances, Yaddle is still there. So you've got a healthy contingent of of Jedi and senior positions who are like, who are aware of this obscure connection, let's be honest, that it doesn't isn't real, but could help guide the direction. The decisions that they're making, man. See, now we know how Phase Three of Higher Republic is going to end. You didn't know we were going to get to that tonight, did you?
0: See, I love how Drew says, "I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, but I'll go down this other one." <laughs> it's a different one. It's, yes, he it's does. It's entirely different. <laughs> um, no, I think like they had been around for a while, and there's even within, uh, and this obviously is a recontextualization after the movie comes out, but in brotherhood there's allusions to how there is a class system and the trade federation is kind of like the upper class of even the nemoidian culture and so oh, and that they weren't necessarily always doing what was best in for all the nemoidians or at least what represented all of uh, nemoidia and so i think that that greed is something consistently in this film in particular we see Palpatine take advantage of in a way that we don't in the other movies because you see him take advantage of the the greed and the bureaucracy of the the Senate and, um, you know, why do people protect positions of power for money? You've, they've got that going on there. Mm-hmm. You've, you've got the Nemoidians and the Trade Federation. They're ra- rallying against uh, the taxation of trade routes, not because they can't afford it, because they're insanely rich. They're doing it because they want to hold on to their money. Like, they're not doing something that's going to benefit the Republic. They're doing something that's going to benefit themselves. And so it's those things that um, Palpatine is able to exploit. And I think you even kind of see it with the the Naboo and the Gungans, right? You've got this class of the Naboo people who are artsy and high-minded and philosophical and all of those things that we... Attribute tribute to, to more, you know, upper-class society. And then you have the Gungans who are down in the dirt, you know, and they are live in the swamps and they are warrior people and things that tend to get looked down on by people like the Naboo. And so you have that, that disparity that's created between them that if it didn't get healed by Amidala and the, the work of the Jedi, could have been the complete downfall of the planet overall and, and I'm sure Palpatine had a plan of like well what if we actually do win this like he definitely had contingencies of well if I win this one I'm going to go this way if I win if I don't win this one I'll go that way kind of thing I mean the theme that you're all
1: starting by right here was also very much present in the Tatooine arc of the plot I mean it's, it's Qui-Gon who literally says greed can be a powerful ally in the context of you know, Anakin and the pod race and everything in there, you see like how much of that society is driven by greed, whether it is owning people, whether it is betting on the pod races and it's Qui-Gon is ultimately able to sort of lean into that leverage at sort of putting Watto in this position where like he gets, you know, the offer he can't refuse and he goes along with this bet and then he ends up on the losing end of it and Qui-Gon gets the kid. So yeah, I mean it, it it is this it is this kind of through line through all these, you know, three little plot lines that we get in the movie.
0: Well and even if you look at the Jabba the Hutt and the pod race, you know, as a microcosm of that idea, Jabba literally looks down on the pod racers, which are are considered, you know, lesser and Not only that, he's not even interested in it. He doesn't even pay attention. It's just a status symbol that I can make these people go do this. And I can just dangle money in front of them that is irrelevant to me, but is a huge thing to them. And all of that, like the whole thing. And I think also it needs to be considered. I know that they are technically, you know, outside of the Republic. And it's very, you know, it's very clear in the movie that Tatooine is not a part of the Republic at that time. But the fact that the Republic allows something like that to exist and they have to know that that stuff like that is happening out there. The Jedi, we know, know that slavery is happening out there because of master and apprentice. Um, essentially, you know, the Yoda's like, we, we can't really do much about that. So we're just going to kind of ignore it. And yeah. that's, that's a problem if you have what is the largest government body in the galaxy and you have the jedi who are supposed to be its moral compass and they see a problem even a problem that at the time didn't have a plausible solution but they're just not doing anything about it that's to me another problem that and shows this how this class system of greed and power had really corrupted the Galaxy as a whole, um, prior to this movie, and this is is Palpatine taking advantage of and exploiting it. So that's what stands out to me in the Phantom Menace. Anybody have any more thoughts on that? Oh, we'll talk about more about uh, governing classes and stuff like that. Events. I have a feeling Nemoidians sure. will come up again too, but I just, we'll wait and see. It's possible. It's All possible. right. Well, Drew, since you kind of teased it, why don't you go next?
2: I don't know that I have a clear and concise way to, co- to put a thesis statement together, but the way in which the Galactic Senate conducts business is bonkers. Um, I knew you were going to go in, here. In, yeah. I know. And it, what's really funny, we talked about this in, a little bit in the pre show because we, Brandon, you and I had a conversation about the Phantom Menace uh, roughly three years ago this very month. Um, where we watched it and took notes, and, and I went back and found my notes from that and have added them to tonight's notes, so it's even more ridiculous. Um, but it was one of the major things that stood out, and we've talked in the past, and it's it's pretty obvious about you know, an organization called the Trade Federation, a privately owned corporation, having a seat in a representative body allegedly filled with elected officials is a wild... Um, but capitalism is going to capitalism, so that's you know kind of par for the course and demonstrative of Brandon your original point, where the greed of these companies has gotten so strong and the the influence and power that they wield has grown to such an extraordinary le- level that now they even have a, a, a not even um, not even like a man. What's the word? What's the opposite of explicit? Implicit not even just an implicit role in lawmaking, like a lobbyist would have, but an explicit role, like they have a literal seat in the flying table. Uh, so that's, we've all covered that ground before, but what, I, what stood out to me this time, w- w- and kind of hit me a little bit differently now, because again, a lot has happened in the past couple of years, is that Palpatine, in front of the Senate, um, makes public statement that his planet's been invaded, and that there's a problem, right? And in order for someone to speak on his behalf, he brings Queen Amidala into the Senate pod, and she floats out and begins to make her, uh, basically, her public declaration of what's been going on. She, for some reason, well, actually, if if we think about the order of events there, the Trade Federation delegation, which is, again, bonkers, moves to form a committee, and it's shouted down as kind of out of order, you know, not following the rules of, of the process in the committee hearing, as it were. But then Queen Amidala submits a motion for a vote of no confidence. She is not a galactic representative. <laughs> she does not have standing to file such a motion. This you know Palpatine doesn't stand up and do it and what happens everybody jumps up and down and says vote now, vote now. This is if you think about it. This is like in the American system of government, you can have you have congressional hearings where they can call witnesses and, and, and allow them to speak uh, and provide their their testimony, right about any number of different issues. Imagine if um, at a full session of Congress, and this happened not too long ago where the President of Ukraine, Zelensky came over and kind of explained, what was going on? Imagine if at that moment he said, and therefore because of all this stuff that's happening, I'm calling for a new election in the United States government. And then they did it. That's the equivalent of what we're talking about here. Okay, I,
0: I, I hear what you're saying, wild. but is there?
2: I'm skip. I'm skipping over the fact that she's an elected queen because we've handled it again that one in the past. Well, that and that that's something already. to
0: think about is. It do, do the the queens kings presidents the do the elected leaders of these planets have any power in in the congress in the senate like we no. we don't so know that like a, yes it, it it's could be terribly hard to use it could be law <laughs> yes. i'm just Either, saying. okay there
2: is a black box of weird Star Wars logic where you know questions go in and answers come out and we don't know how things work in the middle. That's for sure. I'll give you that. But as, if we keep it an as, as analogous as possible to the U.S. Republic, because that's kind of what all this stuff is modeled after, even yeah. when you get to like the, the original trilogy, the Empire is supposed to stand for certain political parties and whatever. So you have a galactic senate which is a unicameral body in this universe, because there's no representatives, so you have, it's basically, um, think more along the lines of a parliamentary system, not a British parliamentary system, because again, theirs is bicameral, but other countries, Israel has a unicameral uh, system like that. But then, so those are elected by individual regions in the Star Wars universe, allegedly by planets, except for the guys who are ET, who knows where they come from? That's not really great. They come from the the phone home sector. Oh, God, it's like I walked into it. How did I let that happen again? (sighs) So the planets elect senators, and the senators travel to Coruscant to meet there, but they also have regional leadership at home. You know, even Tarkin says the regional governors shall have direct control over their system, so they no longer have representation in the Senate. Okay, so Amidala is elected by her people of Naboo to lead the planet, but Palpatine is elected to represent them outside of the system, you know, out in the galactic republic system of government. So imagine, I live in the state of North Carolina, and so imagine if the governor of North Carolina, Roy Cooper, again, went to the Senate for a full session, (laughs) gave his testimony, and said the leader of the Senate, Kamala Harris, the Senate pro tem, needs to be replaced <laughs> <laughs> what senators are going to jump up and down and say vote now vote now i mean i can think of a couple
0: i was gonna say and not for the right reason yeah that doesn't seem like <laughs> as much of a stretch as it might have in 1999
2: and, and just, it, 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 i know we've seen the government bodies do some crazy things <laughs> in the past couple years and just because they're not supposed to do it doesn't mean they won't try (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) Um, anyway that's kind of the the ridiculousness of listening to you know essentially a mayor come to the federal government and say you you're out we need a new one of you
0: yeah and (laughs) it's not great Dan (laughs) Like even trying to play, even trying to play devil's advocate and say, like, oh well, it might be in, in within the law is is a <laughs>
2: stretch. There are some. We know that there's a system of courts. We know that there's a republic. We don't really know how it's organized. There's not a lot of good, clear information about how things work. For example, you know, that ex- even extends into after Return of the Jedi, where Leia is still referred to as a senator. But she doesn't have a planet to represent. So does she represent just the survivors of Alderaan? Like, is it just kind of a
0: Senator Emeritus position? It's not super clear. It's not great. No, I'm pretty sure in Bloodline, doesn't it lay out that she... It's either in Bloodline or in the Leia comic um, that she, it's laid out that she does represent the remaining people of Alderaan. That they're still recognized yeah, as like, an independent people.
2: From where? Like, did, that, I, Maybe this is because I'm in the middle of the courtship of Princess Leia, which, sidebar, I've never read this book before. It's pretty good. I can't believe it. I'm kind of shocked. Anyway, there's a lot of discussion about resettling Alderanian survivors, and so I may be getting that confused with what exists in the current canon, because I remember reading Bloodline, but it's been several years now. So I'll defer to you guys on that one.
0: Devor, do you remember exactly?
1: I don't. At least I don't remember from <laughs> from Bloodline. I know that in because uh, I read them not that long, reread them not that long ago. In the aftermath books, there's an interlude where it talks about the Alderanians kind of trying to set some sort of government up for the refugees, but I don't know where that extends
0: to. By the time you get to you know pre sequel trilogy, Drew, you're an aftermath. Aficionado, do you remember the chapter and verse? Aftermath is a series of books that I have read. <laughs> Multiple times.
2: No no no. Let's be clear, this is the first time I've finished all three. Oh, okay. So. Spoil spoiler alert before <laughs> Don't don't tell Meg. We'll talk about it in a couple of weeks. <laughs> oh man. It, and there is a weird isn't there in that interlude, don't they talk about like Using, like, pieces of the second Death Star or something as, like, like they're going to smelt it down and, and build, like, a uh, space station kind of stuff out of it?
0: Something. Yeah, there's something. I don't remember it very well. My brain just went, that sounds so dumb. And then it also, at the same time, <laughs> time went, and it somehow makes yeah, sense for this book. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to think, Moving like... Along. So, are there any other? There's no real other instances we see the Senate. Um, well, no, that's not true. We see. I, I I was saying I was gonna say without like just it being completely focused on Palpatine, but we do see Jar Jar making the motion to to give him emergency powers, which is yeah. somebody making a motion. But but at least at that he's, point
2: he's a representative he, yeah. of the system, so yeah. he. He belongs in there and is acting in accordance with the powers of his office, which is fine. We do get some, again, not to go back to the Aftermath Trilogy, some post-Empire, Empire's Rule, uh, Senate action, but that's kind of set up under Mon Mothma, which is a a slightly different system, but at least there's a little conversation about how that stuff works there.
0: Yeah, I'd like to see more of of it fleshed out in the uh, Andor series, you know, like we get some some, some scenes of it, but I'd like to see like some act somebody actually like try to make a motion or something like that, um, because like that's in Bad Batch we get um, there's the moment when Palpatine declares, you know, it's the era of the um, Imperial Stormtrooper, and that's very clear that like he just makes that happen. You know, it's not uh, a it's not voted on or anything like that, even though right. that's originally what the plan was. He just steps it and makes it be, which makes sense at the time, but it's interesting to see that transition from where apparently anybody can make a motion to, <laughs> to change the game to where it's consolidated into just one thing. And that it's, is kind of, yeah, it's, it's kind of the danger of the Emergency Powers
2: Act mm-hmm. that, is, that Jar Jar kind of st- puts into place is because when you start assigning legislative authority to the executive branch like that and kind of making the, the leader of the legislation, legislative branch and the leader of the executive branch is the same individual is the beginning of the end. And he never gives that up, un- up until the point where you know Tarkin is the one who tells us that the emperor has dissolved the Senate permanently because at that point, what's the point? Yeah. Of, of even having it. Like, he gives direct control back to the governors of the planets, and which would have been, and, you know, had she survived Queen Amidala at that time. Oh, I think they're term limited. I think the Queen's books tell us they're term limited. Yeah. Yeah. Which, again, yeah. a queen is term limited. What the heck? <laughs> you can't just... These words have meanings. <laughs> you can't just do this to me. Well, the...
0: It's a different galaxy. It can be just a title. It's kind of like how we didn't know what a parsec in Star Wars was for the longest time.
2: That's You know what? You're not wrong. This is, <laughs> there's precedence for this kind of nonsense. Exactly. There. Exactly. <laughs> um,
0: so yeah, That's and enough
2: for me on this one. Let, we should move on to DeVore's nonsense because I'm sure it's coming.
0: DeVore, what do you got for us?
2: All right. Amy, I
1: thought about a couple different things that I wanted to talk about or bring up in this movie and i think ultimately i've decided uh, to settle on this one which is that i my thesis about the the phantom menace or about a particular character in the phantom menace is that i think that qui-gon jinn is a misunderstood maverick the movie establishes very clearly that qui-gon you know despite being a Jedi, is somewhat at odds with the institutional order. And and that comes through pretty clearly at many points, whether it is, you know, the moments in which he is butting heads with his apprentice, Obi-Wan, who is very much a kind of, you know, buy the books, we got to do things this way, and is (laughs) repeatedly frustrated by his master deciding to just, Pick up random people along their journeys, you know, and, you know, make bets on, (laughs) you know, their ships and things like that. And you see it, of course, when they get to Coruscant and they're actually in front of the Jedi Council and, you know, Qui-Gon is, you know, dropping not only, well, I think I fought a Sith Lord, but also I found this kid and he might be the one. And, you know, there's that whole conversation with them on the balcony when after, you know, they've evaluated Anakin and they're like, oh, he's too old. And, you know, we, we, we sense grave danger in his training, you know, when they're talking. And Obi-Wan's just like, for the love of God, just like go along with him one time. And he's like, no, <laughs> I won't. <laughs> I refuse. So you see him very much at odds where you've kind of got this this the system that is in place, these rules and so on. And he's sort of following his intuitions and what the, you know, where, where he thinks the force is guiding him. Like you see that, that conflict where he's like, well, the the kid, like he is the chosen one. You have to see it. And Mace like, he's too old. Like he, he breaks that rule. Like we can't train him. So you kind of see that tension. So you see that way in which he kind of, Buckles and is not a kind of institutionalist with like with this order, like the way that the Jedi have become at this time, where they're very, where they're very strictly rule bound. And, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of conversation around Qui Gon and you know how he relates to be, and the kind of Jedi that he is and how he relates to the Jedi order that I think kind of pushes that. Maverick quality of him a little too extreme, which is that I I do think, yes, he is, you know, like he, he goes at odds with the order and he disagrees with parts of the institution, but I think at the end of the day, he is still... A Jedi, and he still takes the commitments of the Jedi way of life seriously. And so, like, I see, particularly with, you know, when people talk about the kind of alternate scenario of like, what if Qui Gon had lived past the end of Phantom Menace and had taken Anakin on as his apprentice? Would he have been maybe a little bit. Looser, you know, would he been a little bit more forgiving in certain aspects in terms of like how Anakin could live and seeing his mom and things like that, than as opposed to Obi Wan was much more of a kind of severe master. And I'm like, I don't know that he necessarily would. And I think there's even little bits of evidence in Phantom Menace that go along with this. So, for example, when he's having the conversation with Shmi and they're talking about Anakin and his powers and so on, and he's trying to get a better sense of, like, who is this kid and where he comes from? He has this line where he says, had he been born under the Republic, you would have identified him earlier. Mm-hmm. So, in essence, what he's saying is, look, if you'd been living in a Republic system, you wouldn't have had these nine years. We'd have taken him a long time ago and initiated him into the Jedi way of life. So there's that line where he's kind of tipping his hat a little bit to, like, the way Jedi do things. And then the other time is after Anakin is freed. And he's getting ready to go. And Anakin, of course, is really excited. He's like, I get to go with you on your starship. And then he, you know, he bends down and he says, Anakin, training to become a Jedi is not an easy way. Of, uh, is not an easy thing. And even if you succeed, it's a hard life. I think the line is, it's not an easy challenge. And even if you succeed, it's a hard life. So even there, in that moment, he's telling Anakin like it's not just about like being on the starships and having the laser sword and everything. There is this kind of severity and austerity to this way of life. It it requires, you know, as Yoda says in Empire, like th- this deep, the serious commitment, right? Uh, the serious mind, the deep commitment. And so in that respect, like, yes, I think he is, he pushes back in a lot of ways, you know, as like being against the institution, but he is also very much committed to the philosophy and to the way of life. So he's not in that respect, like his master, Dooku, in terms of like someone who is also sort of a maverick who kind of pushes against the order, who bristles against some of us, but then ends up going all the way to that extreme of abandoning the Jedi way of life entirely and kind of living his own way and then eventually, you know, falling to the Sith. (laughs) Qui-Gon is still very much committed to being a Jedi and the things that come with that and committing to that sort of way of life. So yeah, that's what I say. He is a Maverick, but I think we sometimes kind of misunderstand the nature of that, that Maverick quality about Qui-Gon.
0: Hmm. I don't think you're wrong. Like, because I don't see a, a world where Qui-Gon walks away from the Jedi order. Like, I maybe if they just completely refuse to let him train Anakin, but I—I I mean, I—I I think that the council bends when they realize that Qui Gon is willing to do, you know, that they're they're going to know that he doesn't actually want to do that, and I think there's going to be some forgiveness and some grace there. But yeah, it, it, like he's not. An anti-Jedi Jedi, like he is very much a part yeah. of the organization, and he believes in it. And there's even a moment in the Phantom Menace novel where he's talking about, you know, he knows his biggest flaw is that he focuses too much on the uh, the unify or the living force instead of the unifying force, and so he is caught, you know, focusing on what is happening here now and not considering. What the past or the future, uh, and the people that will occupy—I think it says—the people that will occupy this space. So, like, he is aware of his own flaws, and I—I I think, in a way, that Duku wasn't. Um, Duku had a level yeah. of arrogance to him, and Qui-Gon has that humility to know that part of what he needs to be able to be who he is is the Jedi Order. So, yeah, I don't—I I don't see. Qui-Gon not being a Jedi uh, in in really the strictest sense of the term.
2: Yeah, and that's an important role to have, like in every organization, the one who can kind of who isn't blinded by all the good things in the organization in order to point out its foibles and problems. Like it's that pebble in the shoe kind of thing where it still goes along for the ride, but it's always there making things a little bit more difficult. But it keeps people honest too. The people who stay inside of an institution or organization like that in order to make sure it stays on track like that's a that's a, I would consider that an extremely important voice to have, even though it's someone who's always going to find themselves in the minority opinion, but you know the council doesn't kick him out, you know they still value his opinion they just don't agree with
0: his decisions or directions but they can't well, and the council offers him a spot like we know that now with master and apprentice like. He got offered a spot on the Jedi Council, so it's very clear yeah. that he's valued. Right,
2: exactly. Like, and and he t- he's, it's, he's the one who turns them down. He says, no, I think I can be more effective in this particular role. Right. You know, It kind of reminds me like to, quite tangentially to um, Top Gun Maverick, where after 20, 30 years, Maverick, who, again, coincidentally named HaHa, you know, he wants to remain at that captain level, just flying planes instead of being the one who wants to train guys because he's more effective at what he does. He doesn't go on to be an admiral like Iceman does. Have you guys even seen these movies? Oh, Am of I course. Myself? I've not seen many. Top Gun. Yeah,
1: I, I love Top Gun Maverick. I have not seen okay, Maverick.
0: Uh, it's good. You'd like it. It's fun. I don't like Tom Cruise. I can't watch movies really? with him. I can't take him seriously. In fairness, the movie doesn't
2: take him very seriously either. I don't okay. think. Okay. It's more fun than it is like, you know, he, 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 well.
0: No, I just mean seriously a as Leonardo a human movie.
2: being, but. Oh, oh, if we're going off of like human characteristics, then we should probably stop watching any of these movies.
0: <laughs> That's valid. Um, Have you seen George Lucas? Come on now. <laughs> but focusing back on Qui-Gon Jinn, not Liam Neeson to Qui-Gon be clear. Jin. Qui-Gon Jinn. Um, who is fine. We have no problem with Liam Neeson. Yeah, Liam Neeson human being. is is fantastic. Um, yeah, he, he is a necessary part of the Jedi Order. And I think, like, if you look at... I, I immediately go to when Ahsoka left the Order because people think that that's what Qui-Gon would do, and I don't think he would but I don't think he would because of where the Jedi were at at the time and the the way that he was allowed to push back against the system because of the time of peace that they were in. And that's why I think... I don't think he would have left the Order when the Clone Wars happened, but I, think, I don't think he would have participated in the Clone Wars. I don't think he would have... Uh, become a general. And I think that that actually would have had a really positive effect on the Jedi Council as a whole. And maybe we made them question, like, he's pushing against this, and he's been right more often than he has been wrong. Like, maybe this is something that we should really consider. And by the time you get to when Ahsoka leaves, they've lost that ability. And and they... it's right there in, in the the story. Like, they were wrong about Ahsoka, and they've lost the ability to really analyze that, and it's not until it's, you know, literally put in front of them that they're able to realize the the mistake that they made in not trusting um, one of their own who was trying to do what was right, because they had just deteriorated so much.
2: Yeah. I mean, he's not immune from those kinds of failures, though himself. So one of the things that I had noticed this time was going to be one of my points: is his Qui-Gon's indifference to Shmi Skywalker's situation in its entirety reflects a lot of the condition of the Jedi Order and how it values people that it can't actually drag into its organization orbit. Mm. Like, there's a weird like math equation behind all this because if you remember, Wadu says no pod is worth two slaves, not by a long shot, right? But one pod is worth one slave. It's worth Anakin's freedom at least, right? So there's the value of the pod is equal to thereabout, the the value of a nine-year-old slave boy. But after they win the race, they sell the pod. So they convert the physical item into... A monetary amount, which again, if we look back at it, the value of the pot racer is equal to the value of a slave. They take the pot racer, convert it to cash, and what do they do with the cash? They give it to Shmi instead of buying her freedom. Like they have this opportunity, Qui-Gon has this opportunity to get her out of the system, and he doesn't. He takes the son because of what the son can offer the institution, but for someone who has no um, contribution that she can make. He's not interested. He says like two or three times, I didn't actually come here to free slaves. And if they say it in such a dry, matter-of-fact, casual way, Mm -hmm. that makes it so stark that they don't... like Padme recognizes that slavery as its own institution, outlawed under the Republic, is abhorrent. Qui-Gon doesn't care. And I don't, you know, having read Master and Apprentice, you're, you know, when it first came out, and I don't really remember much about that, but I remember that was part of that in that story, too, wasn't it? So
0: yeah. It came up in that. Yeah, it was the, there was a corporation that basically had indentured servitude, and Qui-Gon wanted to do something about it, and Yoda basically told him he couldn't. So that's why, I like, what's the change in, from that, which takes place before the film, into this one, where he's confronted with it
2: yet again?
0: I think it, the way that I've reinterpreted it is almost a defeatist mentality of like, I know I'm, this is not something that I'm going to win. And there's more of an urgency with the boy than there is, uh, you know, with his mother, at least in the force. And so I think that that's, and I, I think it still proves the same point of, you know, the jedi are starting to lose their way but i think he's he's doing a cost benefit analysis and it's just with the urgency of yeah. everything else around him it's i true. don't think he doesn't care i i honestly do think that if quigon survived that he would have tr- he would have tried to uh free shmi or at least supported anakin in an effort to do so like i think that's but, yeah. really the biggest change i don't think it's you know that necessarily, Qui Gon was some was going to be a, a better master overall than Obi Wan. Like I think they each had different strengths and weaknesses, but I think that that is the the game changer. There is is he would actually support this fight against mm-hmm. slavery because he he did. It's very clear in Master and Apprentice he deeply cared about the issue. But again, it was a matter of there's this urgent need right in front of me. I've got to handle this first. And then things deteriorate yeah. or he dies. And, and that yeah, stops it, him it, from it being con- able to pursue it. It's just kind of that
2: wild, disjunctive feeling that says like he's got the, you know, the problem right in front of him and with means and methods to solve the problem but just there's this like well I, maybe it does i don't have enough room on the ship i can't you know i'll get you on the next round or something like that because i think the film wants us to believe that there's a connection between those two characters between qui-gon and shmi like they're the only like adults in the room it feels like mm-hmm. and there's there's definitely like this this um a deeper understanding of what it means to care for somebody else and so they can kind of see that in each other where you know Qui-Gon has cared for Obi-Wan and raised him up and trained him up in the way he should go. Shmi has done that for Anakin. Shmi is willing to give up Anakin to Qui-Gon to give him that better life because I think she trusts that he's got that paternal sensitivity to him already. He doesn't have to like learn how to deal with it like Obi-Wan ends up having to learn himself. Obi-Wan being a character of rules and structure and order and schedules is... I don't know if he's better suited to raise up a a kid who's come out of the slave life. Maybe. I don't know that. But I feel like Qui-Gon in the end would have been almost dangerous for Anakin. Because he's such a freewheeling spirit... Devor, like you're saying, he's, such a, he's a maverick. While he's part of the system, he definitely doesn't march to the same drumbeat as everybody else does within the Jedi Order. And so for somebody who has you know, this deep well of power waiting to be directed, to just unleash that in every direction would be equally catastrophic is kind of what we get in the story anyway. At least Obi-Wan is there to put you know, guardrails along Anakin's path to keep him from going wildly off course up into a certain point. Poor Qui Gon Jin, but I think nobody listens. I nobody think
0: Qui Gon would have put guardrails on too. Like I don't think he. I,
2: I don't know. He doesn't strike me as that kind of a guy because he's he's willing to disobey I, the Jedi Order. He I, he steps all over uh, Panaka. Like th- th- in the moment where he says, "Hey." They're talking to Amidala, and they're like, hey, uh, Qui-Gon says, we're going to go to Tatooine. And is like, I'm your head of security. I think that's a bad idea. And qui like, I don't care what he has to say. Let's go. <laughs> like He just has that sense of, no, I know it's right. It's fine. It's fine. But it, it, it's kind of confirmation bias. He is correct so often that I wonder if there's a concern in the future that he would see a thing, make a judgment, and be wrong about it. And in that time, it would be such a costly error that it, it, it could lead to something so much different than what we would see later on anyway.
1: Yeah, I, I'm thinking like, I, I, I'm, I'm still inclined, I'm inclined to your point of view, Brandon, which is I think he would still put on some kind of guardrails. Because again, this, this is sort of what we're trying to get to in terms of like the kind of Maverick that Qui-Gon is. Because like we get, you know, there, there's a counterpoint between him and, and dooku that gets sort of established and we've kind of talked about but then also you know going back to the master and apprentice book there's also a counterpart that's established between him and rail avaros Duku's other apprentice where avaros is much more the kind of freewheeling hippie you know like i'm just gonna kind of do whatever set against the kind of you know also the kind of unconventional jedi but still kind of more severe qui-gon so I, I think there's, it's, it's kind of hard to like tease out the difference. It's, it's a difference you almost, you can't like, you can't see it un, until you see the opposite of it. If that makes any sense, uh, mm-hmm. you can't see kind of what Qui-Gon is until he is put in contrast to someone, whether that be the, the masters on the council, whether that be Dooku, whether that be put a rail, you know, something like that. But yeah, I, I think he still would have tried to, guide anakin's training his power within a kind of structure dictated by the jedi way of life and the jedi philosophy
0: and i think qui-gon also like he he's very self-aware and so he knows like when to where to where his weaknesses are and where he needs support and stuff. And I, I go back to this moment in tales of the Jedi when he's talking to Dooku and, uh, this is after Dooku has left the order, but Dooku is, is still in good standing and, and comes back to the temple and everything. And they're talking and Dooku basically says like, I won't be there to, to protect you or to be kind of be your shield now. And, Uh, Qui-Gon goes Obi-Wan fills that role now and there's no reason to think (laughs) that Obi-Wan wouldn't continue to fill that role of giving of kind of pushing back against Qui-Gon's desire to rebel and you know try to keep him within the structure as he does as a Padawan like the the story could continue in that way where he's doing that and almost kind of like you with the, with Ahsoka, you kind of, you have Anakin as her master, but you've also got Obi-Wan as kind of a B master. You could kind of mm-hmm. have that with, uh, with Anakin. I, I think it would almost be advisable. I think the council would appreciate that, um, with Anakin because of it, you know, Anakin's potential, you have a balance of, of Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and how they push back against each other. But it, makes both of them better you know it gets obi-wan out of his own way by allowing him to be you know let things slide for example knowing about anakin and padme like if he had a different master i don't know if he lets that you know happen but i think having qui-gon as a master allowed him to see like maybe there are times when the interest of the person is more important than the interest of the rules, and vice versa for for Qui Gon. You know, he he sees the need at times to follow the rules. We see that. We see him. You know, like we've talked about living within the tenets of the Jedi Order, and and essentially those are those are rules. Those are rules and regulations of how a Jedi is supposed to behave. And he pushes against them, and and you know stretches the rules, but he never fully breaks them, you know? There's there's not anything... Hmm. <sighs> Does he? I, I think he might it's have. Not a critical... Yeah. It's not a critical uh, element to your point, but I get it. Yeah, but, but... Like, I can see him doing it, but I don't think we ever see on screen him actually full-on break a rule. Yeah,
1: there, there's... Like, the one point that I can think of, like, in the movie where he kind of flirts with it is when... You know, the council says, you know, denies Anakin the training, and then he says, yep. like, I'll train him. And he says, I take him on. And then they're like, well, you already have an apprentice. Like, the code forbids that you can't have two of them. And then he immediately pivots to Obi-Wan is ready for the trials. So he kind of has this moment where he's like, oh, like, he might break a rule here. He might take a second apprentice. But then he kind of shifts lanes again. He's like, well, no, actually, Obi-Wan's ready to, you know, face the trials and go on on his own, which would free him up to have a, another Padawan. Um, so that's the only moment that can, that immediately comes off the top of my head, at least in the movie, where like he gets really close to overtly saying, I'm going to break this rule, but then still kind of steps
2: away from it.
0: He finds a loophole. He's a well, loophole guy, put, not a rule breaker.
2: The question gets put on hold, and then he inconveniently passes away in the midst of the conversation.
0: So. <laughs> yeah. So inconsiderate of him. I mean, you know, it's weird. I mean... <sighs> Bottom line. It's one way to get out of a fight with your boss. That yeah, it is. I don't know if it's the best way. Oh, um, no one
2: said it was the best
0: way. Okay, it's just a way.
2: Yeah, there's all kinds of ways. It's just not a lot of. You know, they're not always good. That's
0: all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, know, you know, interesting. Uh,
2: the, the last point that I had about quargon specifically was um, that I thought it was interesting that when he dies. They hold his funeral service on Naboo, Mm -hmm. and the whole of the Jedi Council comes there. And they're also present at the parade sequence at the very end of the film. Now, between you, me, and the fact that this is a movie made in Hollywood, it makes pretty good sense that you've got characters, you've got actors, and they want to be in the final scene so they can all celebrate together, just like at the end of Return of the Jedi. They're all kind of conveniently cropped, and at the end of A New Hope, if you think about it. Um, So that's probably why they are there on set that day. But it's interesting from, like, a respect for his particular involvement, Qui-Gon's particular involvement in the Naboo, uh, uh, what's a noun you can use, the, the Naboo events? O-
0: occupation.
2: Uh, yeah, occupation. Like, it's, it's interesting that they're willing to make that journey for him. And allow him his final resting as a part of that particular culture rather than take him back to whatever you know Coruscant's equivalent of Arlington is right like that would have been like a more natural expectation yeah like kind of something more because again the way in which I, I think about the Jedi Order is like our their version of our FBI so law enforcement assigned by executive branch in order to go out and do whatever it is that they need to get the job done no problem, but they leave him out there in Naboo and I always thought that was that was a neat thing visually, but this time it stands out from like an organizational standpoint of like okay, they have a a high enough level of respect that in closing the final chapter on this man's life, they're willing to do it in a way he would have wanted to do like clearly he's been a man of the suffering people and he's at, unless they're slaves then
0: at least, <laughs> at least except they, for those that are suffering the most just
2: you know whatevs it's okay you know never mind the the occupation on ebu where we see uh, a total of zero people die from um whatever but at least they they let him maintain that in those last final moments i thought that was interesting
0: it is and the you know we've we've seen in clone wars the the jedi funeral uh there in the temple that they have but I mean, it's not – that's not the only – well, it's the only instance we know of where they um, hold the funeral elsewhere. But it's not the only instance where they don't necessarily follow the same ritual every time. So in Rise of the Red Blade, they don't bring people back from Geonosis to give them the proper funeral. So they basically just have – like. Nothing oh, wow. under the cloth, um, so they hold these funerals, but it, the body is not actually there. And so that's I think that's
2: weird. That's
0: that's interesting. It, it it is like the I mean, and obviously yeah. I mean, why would they do that? I haven't I I, read I, that one yet, but like it's they oh, won
2: the fight. The, 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 that's the ostensibly thing. The, ostensibly, the arena is under their control. That's what? the thing.
0: It, it's a it's to me it is showing that deterioration. Of their culture, and I think it's it's a big contrast versus what they do with Qui Gon. I think what they do with Qui Gon is a good version of being able to bend the rules, um, but then in, in a metaphorical kind of way, like later this be, that becomes showing the deterioration of the Jedi. It shows the deterioration of the Jedi because they're doing it in the wrong way. Like with Qui Gon, they're doing it in a way that honors what he did in his last mission and then with the battle on geonosis and leaving those people behind it's because of the war and becoming generals and everything that leads to their downfall uh and that's just like one contrast that shows kind of how bad things got for them wow you got it you got to read it dude it is it is such a good book you think it's one i would like Yes, absolutely. Yeah.
2: Okay. Um, Let me
0: finish reading "The Courtship of Princess Leia" from 1994, which I'm kind of surprised you like because it's one that I've heard most people don't like. But then again, you You like Ronan, so Uh, you
2: stop that blasphemy. I can hear what you're not saying. Oh, I'm saying it. I'm saying it loud and clear. It is the best of the post. Disney purchase. It's the best of the new canon. Hands down. It's
0: the not canon, one. but
2: okay. Well, that's true. It's, it's, it's above and beyond. It lives in this sanctum abo- that looks down upon the canon and goes, you wish you could be this cool.
0: Okay, trench coat. Um. <laughs> Drew, did you have any final thoughts on The Phantom Menace that you wanted to share tonight? Listen,
2: there's something going on with Watu that we just have not yet discovered. There's something in that character, and here, here's why. First off, it's really neat that he kind of is able to reject the whole Jedi mind trick thing. But the little guy flies, but has a cane. <laughs> Why's he got a cane if he doesn't walk on the ground? What's in the cane? Is this like some kind of weird, like lightsaber, like in hiding? Is he like a Sith Lord? That he's not actually—it's not his Toydarian nature, but he's just able to reflect back Qui-Gon Jinn's invasive probes of his mind. I think there's more going on here. Also, this was the first time I noticed—if you close your eyes, and and when you're listening to Wadu speak, he sounds like Gru from the Minions movies, and that totally <laughs> changed the way I look at that, that
0: character. Oh my God! So, Steve so Carell voicing Watto.
2: Just just close your eyes and, and listen to Wadu saying, um, you won the small toss, Outlander, but you won't win the race. So it makes a little <laughs> difference. It's no, the I, same
0: character. Yeah, I can hear the voice. I can hear it. It's great. I had to stop and walk away from the movie when I discovered that. Today.
2: <laughs> I'm going to get
0: the twin sons. <laughs> nice. <laughs>
2: nice. Also, we didn't get to talk about the B1 battle droids and how there are different accents for different levels of commanding. And that is a thing that we lost at some point and that's a tragedy. We should always remember in our hearts that one Brooklyn battle droid who's like, we'll start yes. for these rumored underwater villages. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? He has... I, I looked for hours trying to figure out, does he have a designation? He's an OOM droid. We can. He's an OOM model. We can tell based on his coloring and his response. Isn't
1: to that... Is, is that not O O M nine? No, They're not it's the same not. droid. No, no. It's okay, is
2: nine is the one at the beginning of the movie who leads the troop to, to um, confront Qui Gon and Obi Wan on board the, the Luke. Really? Hulk. No, okay, no, no. Because I thought he was the one OOM9. who's
1: ultimately in the field.
2: Yeah, O O M nine is in the field. Uh, the one in, at the beginning of the I feel like it's O O M six. Okay. There are, there are only a couple that have been properly identified and given names and numbers and call signs like that, of the OOM models, which Brandon, if, for, if you're not familiar, are the ones with the yellow coloring on their shoulders. They're kind of like the commanders of, of groups of battle droids, but they all have different accents. And that's super duper cool and it also makes good reasoning why the one in the hangar bay on Naboo doesn't understand Qui-Gon when he says he's taking these people to Coruscant because he doesn't pronounce Coruscant the same way everybody else in the film does. And so the battle droid who only understands his accent and his boss's accent, you know, the Neimoidians, can't understand what he's saying and that's why he places him under arrest.
1: Yes, I, I love that one. I also love the, the the very brief the security droid, the Roger Roger. That one, the, the like croaky guy. Oh yeah,
2: he's the so. What, what, what kind Who of takes him to Camp Four? If it if we didn't have Roger Roger as a thing, like yeah, the world the sun would not shine quite as bright. That is not a world bright. I want to live in, right? But let me ask you this, guys: Do you think that because in like. I don't think in Attack of the Clones... Devor, you're the expert. Do we hear a B1 speak in Attack of the Clones? Yes. All right, play the whole movie in your head real, real fast. Because yeah. I know that you can. Where does that mm-hmm. happen, and which accent is it? Does it? Do they use the Phantom Menace approach, or do they take the Clone Wars slash Revenge of the Sith... Like comic, it, it is you know, still the game. Phantom
1: Menace. So th- there's a couple. The, the main time I think we hear them talk is the one whose head gets put on 3PO's body. That's the one You're that right. has the most like you actually I hear them talk. Yes. yes, there's that one. And then I think also when the battle is actually happening, there's like a little bit of banter you get from other ones. some Roger Rogers. Yes, Rogers Rogers. I think there's at least one. I, but yeah, I that's it. That. But but it's still the it's it's still the Phantom Menace voice. So we still haven't gotten the the Matthew Wood uh, version do you, yet.
2: Do you have a preference of which characterization you you like more than the other, <sighs> and why? And defend
1: it, your position hard. with three examples. <laughs> <laughs> I I I want to say the Matthew Wood one just because it, it's that like. The the Matthew Wood battle droids are when they coincide with really leaning into the humor of them. Like, it's still there. You know, Like, you still get a little bit of the humor in Phantom Menace, and then you attack the clones with, you know, the head gag and stuff. But then once you get to, like, Revenge of the Sith and then into Clone Wars, you fully lean into them as kind of the comic relief. And so... I, I, I kind I, I kind of am biased a little bit towards the Matthew Wood battle droids. Um, like, I was thinking about the, you're welcome, you know, from yeah, <laughs> on the is Invisible is Hand. Exactly
2: uh, what I was thinking. Like, that whole sassy pants uh, edition of the battle droids is not my favorite thing, although it is fun. Oh, I love that. It's, it's fun, and I like that. Like, if he had been the only one who was like, you're welcome, like, that would be one thing. But, like, a whole fleet of them, especially, like, when they're in the elevator and Anakin and Obi-Wan turn around and just mow them all down mercilessly with bloodlust in their eyes and they're all just kind of standing there going roger, 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 roger like at nothing. It's like, okay, clearly we have put all of our R&D funds into the super battle droids who are also given the same kind of weird voice inflection too. Like I'm not sure I understand. Like the only thing I can rationalize in my head, and this is how sad my day has been today. Like you know how the cl- there's there's the trajectory of the clone troopers who individualize their armor, they give each other call sign names, like individual names and whatever, and eventually they morph over time into the bland collective of the Stormtrooper program, right? It's kind of the same thing. Like, in The Phantom Menace, you have accents, you have regional dialect, you have people who can't understand each other, and these are droids, for crying out loud, who have, like... Three PO has six million forms of communication. This guy, you know, <laughs> the one droid in the battle hang- in the hangar, can't understand Co- Qui Gon because he's from Ireland. Like, and then by the time <laughs> you get to Revenge of the Sith, like they're all the same kind of like th- th- they're the the henchmen of the mustache twirling General Grievous. So it's kind of this this weird trajectory that George Lucas likes to put his characters on of like individualism giving way to mass
0: corporatism um, and the well, washing Well, they had to pump them identity. out a lot quicker, you know, for, for the Clone War. So see, that's they, what they had, they had the super battle droids, too. Like, Yeah, but they, they just they went with, production, with one program. But,
2: but if they ended production of the B1 line, then more of them should be like the Phantom Menace edition. But, but they had we're to not saying they ended the B1 line. Well, then where these other ones come from? Like th- this is like model two, like B one, uh, open, parens, <laughs> two close, parens, like that that have this this. I don't know. I'm trying to think of like. I don't want to think too hard about a real world analogy because that gets really crazy. Um, but at a certain point, well, I don't know. Is this the f- is is the battle of is the invasion of Naboo the first application of the B one battle droid in galactic history? Or is this a thing that the Trade Federation have had and been working on for a while? Like it's a B one. Is there an, an A series line? Um,
0: I'm trying to think if there's the heavy in hitting canon?
2: questions that you can't find uh,
0: in every single podcast on Star Wars Podcast Day. I I I feel like there's something in canon that says it is the. First time they use them, but I'm not, at least as a, a, an army, maybe they'd use them as security or something, but as a military force, I would imagine it's the first time. Like, Mm -hmm. we don't have anything to say otherwise. I don't know. I, I like the, the sassy Clone Wars versions of the droids just for that one guy that is falling off the cliff and goes, I was about to get a promotion. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> best best character in Star Wars right there. Love that guy. So sad. Gone too soon. He really was. In he was really looking forward <laughs> in the arms My. of a Gungan. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, oh, this goodness. is what this is what you guys come to the show for is this kind of hard-hitting exactly. analysis of the different dialects of B1 battle droids. Okay. There's a moment where uh, Boss Nass pronounces them Gungans, which is weird. Yeah. Which is how it's pronounced in the audiobook, which is really Wait, Really? Yeah. He calls every them Every time? Every time Gungans. I don't the like Jart,
2: it. Do, do they assign that to every like does Jar Jar said about it? really?
0: Yeah, they're Gungans.
1: he also yeah. calls him Palpatine.
0: Oh yeah, that's the worst. <laughs>
2: What? When does that happen?
0: It's in the audiobook of the novelization, like, like the narrator or the, the the guy reading it. Not Jar Jar, to be clear. Jar Jar does not call Palpatine Palpatine. Oh, okay. The person that is reading the book calls him Palpatine, and it. How is that possible? Like, the audiobook could not have come out before the film, right? I mean, no, and like George Lucas is the one that made the name. I don't know. There's a lot about that audiobook that I'm having issue with. Really? Yeah. I can't wait for you guys to have that conversation so I can listen to it. Yeah, it's gonna be it's it's uh it, it's it's a thing. It, it's a thing that happens. Um but especially <laughs> when you consider it next to other Star Wars audiobooks, uh it it does, uh, we'll just say It doesn't exactly deliver for me. But there'll be more about that on on our special Don't Burn the Sacred Text Star Wars Podcast Day episode that'll be coming out. So make sure you are uh, subscribed to the feed so you can get all of those... Podcast Day shows, all these Podcast Day shows, all of our shows that come out year-round, at least once a week. We're putting out content for you guys. Make sure you're also tuned in on our social channels. uh, We're putting out videos and uh, having great conversations. And then, of course, our Patreon and uh, we got Amanda over there doing some great stuff. She's put out some new episodes recently, uh, and so for just a dollar, you get access to those, and you get to support our mission to put Star Wars books into schools across the country. I got to send out a box of books this week, so we got an nice. awesome teacher who was getting about $250 worth of free Star Wars books. Uh, so if you know a teacher... Uh, give me an excuse to go to a bookstore anytime. I'll take it. Uh, And we will get them a box of books uh, that is for them and for their students and some high-interest books that they're going to want to read. Any level K through 12, uh, we service. So just nominate a teacher over on our website and bada bing, bada boom, they get a box of books. So that is how that works. Devor, tell them how you work. Tell them where you're at. Tell them where they can find you. All
1: right. You can follow me on X at A Larger View Pod. You can also listen to me as a co-host over on Space Swifties, a Star Wars and Taylor Swift
0: podcast that I host with my wife, the one and only McDowell. And Drew, if they want to hear more about your thoughts on battle droids and how they would have actually made Ronin a good book, where can they find you?
2: I'm going to throw things at you through the (laughs) internet. (laughs) <laughs> Your slander elsewhere, young man. Um you can find me on the Facebook group. It's called Star Wars Clashing Sabres. Uh that's where we kinda hang out and trade things back and forth. And I will give you guys an update. The audiobook seems to have a an original release date for the the Phantom Menace episode one audiobook, April twenty one,
0: nineteen ninety nine. So, so actually a month before several the movie.
2: weeks before yeah. What the heck were they thinking?
0: Wild to think about. Meanwhile, like, the Last Jedi book came out, like, six months after... I'm pretty sure the Last Jedi book came out after Solo.
2: Yeah, it was quite some time. The, 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 the schedule... Guys, we didn't even talk about... There's a lot we could talk about tonight. Like, Hasbro announced new Black Series figures, including a new Grand Admiral Thrawn, in reference to his appearance in the Ahsoka show. You remember the Ahsoka show, the one that ended three months ago? Would you guys like to know when that, that action figure is expected to be released? Spring of 2025.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I, I was going to go Who with 2026, but... Who is that for?
2: Who is that, Who is that for? I don't understand. It, the VHS it for Phantom Menace was released in April of 2000, 11 months after the film was originally released in theaters in May 1999. 11 months, nearly an entire year. And this isn't like, you know... Like, oh, this is like before streaming, so things took some time. The average VHS release date was like four to eight months after a film's theatrical release. Never mind like when it was ended. So it took like six months maybe after a film was out. And yeah, The Phantom Menace was in theaters for a while. Brandon, I know you tried to wrap this thing up, but I haven't had friends to talk to in a long time, so the two of you <laughs> get all of it. So that, it was like you'd watch like the release papers from your local FYE or Camelot Records or whatever it was in the mall at the time. And you'd just be like, is it not coming out ever? this is important stuff that we had to figure
0: out when we were kids. It's a different world we live in now. Yeah. Yeah. It
2: really is wild. Did you guys I, like it, It's the level of secrecy over- thing. Like it's
0: they don't want to re- like- they don't want to release who's going to be in the shows or what they look like to the toy companies so the toy companies can't even start production and design right. until like the show is coming out. So
2: But by comparison, and this is what blew me out of the water, Disney is also doing a reboot of the X-Men animated show from, like, 1997, Mm -hmm. cleverly called X-Men 97, and it's uh, slated for a release winter 2024. There are already toys out on the shelves at Target. Now, riddle me this. (laughs) Disney, making X-Men toys a year before it's released, with through Hasbro. Disney also making Star Wars toys through Hasbro, but a year after the thing has been released. Like, can we not get two department heads to like talk to each other and figure something out?
0: No, that's, we cannot. Why would you think we could do that? Capitalism really going to capitalism. We just watched a whole movie and (laughs) talked about a whole movie where that is essentially, that's the thesis right there. Capitalism going to capitalism.
2: That really is. Can you imagine if Walmart had a Senate seat? (laughs) That's roughly what we're talking about. Can you imagine if Walmart had its own line of battle droids? Let's be clear. That would be amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if it would. Do you guys think that the Walmart greeters are their versions of battle droids? Which battle droids, I can do this for an hour. You better wrap the show up or it will get worse.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. That will be where we're going to wrap it up tonight. And... uh, (laughs) Next time you're watching the Phantom Menace, make sure you keep an eye out. There is a cameo in there that uh, we haven't talked about. If you look in the the left corner of the screen, uh, right when Qui Gon is talking to the battle droid, trying to you know go to Coruscant, but he doesn't understand him because he doesn't you know speak the same language. Apparently, uh, you'll see Batch Eight. Hi ho.